Good morning to all of you. Look with me, please, in Colossians chapter 2. That's where we will be again this morning. And Lord willing, we'll be able to actually conclude our study of this second chapter of Colossians. We want to begin our reading this morning in verse 20. If you would please stand with me as we read together Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20. All right, so wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity again to stand and proclaim your truth. We pray as we've gathered here this day that our hearts might be hungry for growing in the knowledge of Christ and in the truth of your word and as well having a desire to truly live out such truth as we would follow after Christ that we may serve you Lord with joyful hearts and submission unto you for you are worthy and you alone are worthy we thank you for every soul that is gathered here this day we thank you for the body of Christ of which you've made us a part we thank you for the opportunity we have to give praise unto you through singing together and as well Lord for the time that we have to open the word of God and to study together and to edify one another as we would serve and minister one to another as Christ works in us. So Lord, we are just grateful and we do remember as well, there are many, Lord, no doubt that are in need and burdened in heart and those as well unable to be with us. Lord, those who are providentially hindered this day, I pray that you might bring them back to us safely and we'll gather again together. We thank you, Lord, for these that are here and as well those who are in need Lord, physically, we pray for them and those with procedures and recoveries and all that's going on, Lord, in life. We know that there's trouble and trying times that we all face, and we just pray for your grace to abound. But Lord, as we now set aside this time to come together around your word, I pray that hearts and minds would be attentive to the truth of your word, to its reading and to its uh, to the study, and that we might grow and glean and benefit spiritually as you would work in us your eternal purpose and work. And Lord, may our lives be that which just glorify and honor you. Lord, may we understand our responsibility to intentionally submit to you that that may be so. And in all things, may you receive the glory and the honor, not only this day and in these moments, but Lord, world without end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we conclude our study of this second chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Colossae, I want to remind you of our previous studies within this chapter so that we better understand the emphasis that Paul actually makes in these final verses of chapter 2. In order to help you to see how Paul brings this emphasis full circle from the beginning passage of this chapter now to the concluding verses of this chapter, In order to help you see how Paul does this in bringing the emphasis full circle, it requires that we again consider 
Paul's warning, which he had previously provided in verses 8 through 10. And within said portion of our study, verses 8 through 10, we considered Paul's warning regarding the danger of deceivers who were attempting to distract the Colossian believers from the lordship or the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And we've dealt much with that already to this point, obviously. And in our study of verses 8 through 10, we discovered that Paul's statement, beware, remember when he says in verse 8, beware, it's a call for the church to see or to see to it. So Paul exhorted the church to beware or see to it that you not first be distracted from Christ. Now again, we've already studied this. I want to remind you of this because Paul's going to emphasize these truths again in our verses that we've read this this morning as we conclude this study of chapter 2. So he says, beware, see to it that you not be distracted from Christ. Verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Paul continued by explaining in verses 9 and 10, for in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. Paul is saying, again, that Christ is the fullness of God, and it is only in his fullness that we are fulfilled, or that we are made complete. Over the past several weeks of our study of Colossians, we've observed the progression of Paul's warning as he exhorted the Colossian believers to not allow anyone to distract them from the truth or the preeminence or lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul continued to warn the Colossian church by twice using this admonition, which we've looked at over the past several weeks. In verse 16, the admonition is, let no man. And in verse 16, he says, let no man therefore judge you. And then in verse 18, Paul says, let no man beguile you. And so we've studied over the past weeks how that Paul, in verses 16 and 17, he is saying that we are not to allow, the Colossian church believers are not to allow any men or any other man to deny you of your liberty in Christ. He says in verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So, And again, we're just overviewing this because we've already studied through this, but Paul warns the church, to beware in that they not allow others to place them under religious bondage. And let me just interject this here because I believe it's of tremendous importance that we acknowledge and recognize this truth, that we are all prone to fall into this. We are all prone to allow others to place bondage upon us that is unnecessary. Not only unnecessary, it's unbiblical and in reality ungodly. And so we are prone to this. And so the warning needs to be heralded. And Paul emphasizes this truth here in these verses specifically. And he says that do not be under bondage. Do not allow others to put you under religious bondage from which Christ had set you free. All the shadows were fulfilled in Christ. He goes on to say, of course, which are a shadow of things to come, meaning the meat, the drink, the holy day, the new moon, the Sabbath days. All of these things were shadows of things to come. But the body is of Christ, he says. And all these things were truly fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily or in the flesh. So in other words, Paul is simply saying, do not exchange the freedom that God has provided you in Jesus for the bondage of religion or the bondage of men. Second, Paul continued, verses 18 and 19, do not allow, that is to let no man defraud you of your reward in Christ. Verses 18 and 19, he said, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels 
intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourished, ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. So again, one of the real problems here, obviously, is that, and we've discussed Gnosticism many times throughout the study, one of the problems here as well is that they, men were claiming some mystical knowledge of God and even like the revelation of angels and appearing of angels to them and how that therefore, you know, they obviously in claiming, making such claims would self-exalt themselves as though they were higher or more spiritual. By the way, the same thing goes on today continually. It's still happening. And people, as though they have some mystical knowledge of God. And the whole point of what Paul is stating in all of this is again, Christ is the manifestation of the Godhead bodily. He came in the flesh, the very Son of God, the image of the invisible God, the God you cannot see. Christ came, the image of that very God, that He might redeem us, that we might have access to God the Father. So all of this mysticism is nonsense. And he's saying this mystical means by which, and all these people claiming now we had these experiences with these angels, now worshiping angels and revelation of, of truth from angels and so on and so forth. And in all of this heresy, it distracts from the preeminence of Christ and notice what it does. It exalts other people to points of preeminence as though they have some significance that they do not rightfully possess at all. And so... Paul, is, again, is pointing us to the head, not holding the head, he says in verse 19, which all the body by joints and bands having nourishing, nourishment ministered and knit together increase with the, with the increase of God. I told you uh, that the verb beguile means to condemn, and the word it refers or implies that of ruling and controlling, actually. And so John warned that if believers allow others to turn them from the truth of the person of Christ and his preeminence, they would jeopardize losing reward. In 2 John verses 7 and 8, John had uh, mentioned... For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So John was dealing with the spirit of antichrist, as he clearly points out in his epistle. And he also was dealing with uh, Gnosticism, again. And again, one of those points being that either the one who appeared to be Jesus was not truly the Son of God, denying his deity, or that Jesus could not have ever appeared to begin with as the Son of God in the flesh, and, and that, you know, Either either the one who came was lying, or it's a lie that he came. That's really what they were saying. And so, that being said, John is battling or fighting or, or uh, standing against such, and speaking out against such um, claims, and John being an eyewitness, which is very important. If you go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and John explains the things which we have seen, we've tasted, we've, uh, you know, we have held, we have heard, all of this is... is the very one that we have put our hands on, we've seen, we've heard, we have observed, we have handled, he says, the, being the word of life. So we, we have tasted of his grace and his goodness. We have known him personally, John is saying, and now he's testifying to the truth of Jesus being the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so John says that one who would come into the world confessing not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is a deceiver and antichrist. Verse 8, he said, look to yourselves that we lose not the thing, those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. So John says, look to yourself so that the reward is not lost, whether of John himself or the individuals themselves, concerning the fruit of the labors that had taken, that had been invested in the proclamation of the truths of these individuals. So there's a warning there that when we take our focus off of Christ, 
when we are not looking to the truth of who he is. He is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the anointed one. He is the Son of God. And we, we fail to, to, or we lose sight of that, or fail to live in that truth, and that truth in mind, in our hearts, then there's reward to be lost as well. And remember, Christ himself is ultimately the reward. He is the prize. We win Christ, so we know him, and there's reward to be lost. So as I previously mentioned, we find Paul bringing his argument full circle in these closing remarks of Colossians chapter 2. So I wanted to give you that review of verses 8 through 10 specifically, and then again just where we've been over the last few weeks to show you how Paul is bringing this all back around to his beginning statements concerning this matter. He says in verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Now, let's go to notice something here. We're going to look at this in a moment. But verse 21 and part of 22 is in parentheses. And that means that it's a, obviously this is a parenthetical statement, which in, in this particular statement, Paul is giving explanation of what he was just stating. When he says, ye are subject to ordinances, such as touch not, taste not, handle not which all are to perish after the using. So let's read it, excluding that for a moment. We're going to deal with that, but let's exclude that for a moment so you're not losing sight of what actually is being stated here. So let's read it again. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrines of men? That's the question. Now, between that question and the midst of that question is this parenthesis that exists for the purpose of explaining the very ordinances which he just referenced. But if you're not careful as we read through this, we miss the question that's being asked. The question is, if you are dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, you've been made dead to the rudiments of the world, why then? Here's the question. Why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrines of men? So why are you living according to the commandments and doctrines of men when you've been set free from all that is in the world and all the bondage that is in the world and the bondage of sin itself? He goes on in verse 23. Which things, all of these things, have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honoring to the satisfying of the flesh. And we'll explain, get into what this means. I know it may be a little confusing at first when you begin to read through that. And there are arguments concerning the last statements Paul makes as to his seriousness in this or sarcasm, and we'll look at that as well when we reach that point. And so this morning, I want us to spend our time together examining Paul's explanation here in these verses of how and why. Because this is his argument. It is illogical for the Colossian believers to turn from living in submission to Christ to willful bondage by submitting themselves to the traditions and religious teachings of men, to the commandments of men. He says this is illogical. He says, why? Wherefore? Why would you do this? And so we begin by looking at this first word, wherefore. And this is a conjunction, and it literally is simply saying, so then, or therefore. So Paul begins... His use of this conjunction, he uses it in such a manner by which he is bridging the previous statements to this conclusion in verses 20 through 23. If all of this be true, if beware because there are those who would deceive you, but remember that you are not to neglect and you don't have to neglect. Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in him. If all of this be true, then why? Therefore, so then, why? And the end of verse 22, again, has to be read with verse 20. 
the two are separated by this parenthetical statement, as I mentioned, which is intended to add clarity and explanation to Paul's statements. Let's read these together again. If ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrines of men? That is the question. If you are free, if you are in Christ, if you've been set free, then why would you live in any other manner? Paul is explaining here the, that to do such is irrational. It is illogical. It would make no sense. And this is that logical question. So if we are dead with Christ, which means that our sin, our guilt, our debt... Now, hear me, please. I want to repeat this because you need to really hear what I'm saying. If we are dead with Christ in his death, we are crucified with Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, if we are dead in and with Christ, meaning that we are our sin, our guilt of our sin, our debt from our sin... Our condemnation as a result of our sin all died with Christ. Then why would you subject yourself under the bondage from which you have been set free? And you say, well, how does that relate? Men are bound religiously because they are attempting to perfect a work that is already perfected. They fall into religious bondage of do and be and all of these commandments of men and tradition that they carry and are placed upon them for the purpose of attempting to please a God that is already pleased and satisfied in His Son. And that being understood, all that religious bondage that men are placed under is in an attempt to perfect something that's already perfected and that is the completed work of christ we are completed him he is the fullness of the godhead bodily we are fulfilled in his fullness hence do not fall and subject yourself to such nonsense you've been made free in other words look you you know what i have to do as a believer in jesus christ do you know what i have to do in order to not be condemned Anyone? As a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, what must I do to not be condemned? Nothing. What must I do to be free from my guilt? Nothing. What must I do to be free from my sin? Nothing. What must I do to be free from religious bondage of men? Nothing. I've been made free in Christ. It's a perfected work. Now, we're experiencing, realizing that perfection as God is working in us continually. But we are not doing anything to gain some freedom. The noun rudiments that's used in this verse means elementary principles. And Paul had previously referenced this again in Colossians 2.8, which looked at this a moment ago. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The statement subject to ordinances means submitted to decrees. Once again, we find Paul made reference to this in his previous statements. He's coming full circle. I told you, verses 13 and 14, he said, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, 
and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So it being submitted to decrees, he, he blotted out all of that. It's all been smeared. It's all been taken away. It's all been removed. And so now we experience this freedom and this liberty and this freedom from burden. You remember in John Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, I'm sure you're, you are familiar with it if you've never read it, but in the book you have uh, Pilgrim, right, who's walking along, who, who is Christian, who has the burden upon his back, and he's trying to find some way to get out from under this burden. It's just overwhelming him, and he's making his way, and finally he, he meets Evangelist, if you recall, and Evangelist takes him to the cross, if you will, and the burden falls off as he, as he kneels before the cross. The burden falls off, and there's a freedom, and there is a weight that's totally gone. It's been lifted. Why would you ever want to go pick that back up and put it on again? And you say, well, the weight of my sin is gone. That's true. Therefore, we have no need to attempt to follow after traditions and commandments of men as though they are the doctrines of God as a means of quote-unquote worship, which is a false worship of God altogether. And we'll see how that all comes together here in, in this text. Paul then expounds upon these ordinances, as I mentioned a moment ago, or the things to which men willingly subject themselves under rather than living under this lordship of Christ. In verse 21, he says, touch not, taste not, handle not. Now, he is not giving a command here. He's not saying, don't touch, don't taste. He's saying, these are the ordinances you put yourself under unnecessarily. He's saying, these are the things that are being taught that you don't have to abide or live under these things. And, and so he is showing us that such commands or teachings of men were intended to enhance one's sense of self-righteousness by denying one's own physical desires. When I say physical, I'm not talking about sinful desires, though that could as well be implied. But in this text, it's not referring to sinful desires as in immorality or anything along those lines, but rather saying that all that that would be forbidden from a religious perspective, that you are, oh, I won't do that, and the reason I won't do that. You know what happens when we, when we think that way? When we, if we are not doing because we are submitting to God and his truth, and if we are doing because we are submitted to God and his truth, that leaves us no room for pride to be present whatsoever. Now, pride exists in us, but I'm talking about for us to rise up in pride however when we don't do because someone else says we shouldn't do and when we do because someone else says we should do that will inevitably result in a prideful spirit and attitude that rises up within whether it's whether one has knowledge of that in the moment or not they begin to think themselves to be more so holy more so righteous than another and so the touch, touch not, taste not, handle not, these commands would have been followed with the, with the end result of being a, a, a pride building up within as though one has a sense of self-righteousness that really does not even exist. And again, think of this for a moment. The moment we begin to, again, if we are living in submission to Christ and his word and therefore we refrain from things that scripture commands us to refrain from, there is no room for us to become prideful in that action. For instance, uh, okay, we're not to obviously commit adultery. So, therefore, we should not commit adultery. That's not the commandment and law of man. That is the law of God and righteousness. But if we are in submission to Christ and God and are faithful to our spouses, then that would mean 
spouses meaning collectively, not individually, faithful to our spouses collectively, then that would mean that it's not a matter of pride. Oh, I've never done this. Or, no, we are just living in submission to the Lord and his truth and righteously. But when men begin to give commandments of don't do and do, and, and we begin to fall under that and subject ourselves to that, then it begins to cause us to look at others that have no reason to obey such commandments and view them as though they are less righteous than we. Because we, by the way, are doing this or we're not doing this, and they are. When there's no basis for such a claim to be made to begin with because the Scriptures never even reference this or never command for or against such an, such a, an action or a, an attitude or spirit, whatever. And so the commands and teachings of men in, were inevitably going to enhance one's self, sense of self-righteousness. Spence Jones commented on this matter. He said, these rules form a part of prohibitory regimen by which sinful tendencies to bodily pleasure were to be repressed, as mentioned in verse 23, and spiritual truths symbolically enforced. Notice what he said, symbolically enforced. So in other words, by physically acting or not acting, we are doing some spiritual this is some spiritual performance by symbolism. Paul referred to such error in his letter to the Corinthians. And, and, and what's being stated, in other words, is that the idea was that if one repressed their own desires, then they would be adding righteousness to themselves. Really, that's what it boils down to. And Paul referenced or refuted this in 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. He said, But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse? So Paul says, whether you eat, to eat does not make you better, and to refrain from eating does not make you worse. So whether you eat or do not eat, it's irrelevant, Paul says. It doesn't even matter. This is an irrelevant argument. And so he says it, it doesn't matter, but everyone was placing such, at this time in these contexts, they were placing such emphasis on these things that they were failing to live in truth of the one thing God commanded them to do, which was to live in submission to him, in subjection to him. Paul, Paul continued in verse 22. Which all are to perish with the using. And that's in relation to verse 21. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are perished with the using. The point to this statement is that these false teachers put believers in bondage by stating that they were forbidden by God to consume those things which were meant to be consumed. These are things that, specifically the meat and the drink, and he's saying when you partake of these things, their whole purpose is that they be consumed and then they perish. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul wrote, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Here Paul is saying, while others would say, no, no, can't do this, and you can't eat that, and you can't abstain from this. He's saying, no, all these things are good, and God gave them to us that we might have them for sustenance and even enjoyment, and that we might be able to eat. And then we'll be able to enjoy and be sustained in life. And so he's saying, while some would say, no, you can't do that, he's saying, no, all things are good, created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Paul further expounded on this liberty to eat 
that which others would forbid him to eat, while explaining that he would not be placed under bondage. But at the same time, he could refrain himself if he thought it necessary for the benefit of others or for the sake of others. So this was not bondage either. This was Paul's freedom enacted. 1 Corinthians 6, 12-13. All things are lawful unto me, Paul said, but all things are not expedient. Expedient here means beneficial or necessary. So Paul is saying, all things are lawful. I'm not forbidden. Now, he's not talking about lawlessness. He's talking about eating and drinking and all this context. He's saying, all these things are lawful for me, but it doesn't mean that they are necessary, nor does it mean they're necessarily beneficial. All things are lawful for me, he said. Now, first he said, all things are lawful unto me. Then he said, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Do you hear what he just said? I am free. I am, it is, I am able to eat. I'm able to drink, but I will not be put under bondage to where I have to under any of these things. Meats, he says, verse 13, here's the context. Meats for the belly and belly for the meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And again, not any one of us live unto ourselves, but we live unto the Lord. Not any one of us die unto ourselves, but we die unto the Lord. So the point is, it's, it's all for the Lord and for his glory. And Paul says, all things are lawful, but it doesn't mean it's beneficial. It doesn't mean it's necessarily uh, a necessity for my life, but yet it's still lawful for me. It's lawful unto me. And once again, as I've mentioned over the past several weeks, I'm, I'm reminded of the words of our Lord when using or quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15, 8, 9, when he said, This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me. Emptiness they do serve me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So they claim to be serving God, which is to say they claim to be worshiping God, but it's all empty and vain because they're teaching the commandments of men as though these are the teachings of God. So you have to do this. Why do I have to do this? Because God said this. Find a verse, take it totally out of context, and then impose that upon someone to live accordingly. The Lord is to be thanked for and worshipped for his goodness. We are to worship him as he has provided us access to him through his son. In other words, let me, let me help you to understand what Paul is dealing with here. There is nothing that we can do, and there is nothing from which we can refrain that will grant us access to worship the Lord. There's nothing I will do and nothing from which I can refrain that gives me or provides me a relationship with God. Furthermore, there is nothing that I can do and nothing from which I can refrain that will give or provide me fellowship with the Lord. You say, oh, wait a minute now, because we can hinder our fellowship. Of course we can. But the provision of that fellowship has nothing to do with what I have done or not done. It has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. I am accepted, been made accepted in the beloved. And he is the one who restores. Read 1 John chapter 1, 8, 9, 10, and so on, and chapter 2, verses 1 and following, where he says, remember, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, speaking to believers who are in fellowship with the Lord. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, to say, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The whole point of that being, he is the restorer of our fellowship. 
So yes, as it's not that I do something so I can have fellowship with God or I refrain from something so I can have fellowship with God. It's that I submit to the Lordship of Christ who is the provider of this fellowship with God. And so even in that, it's not that I do or do not do so that I can get or gain this. It's that I am to submit to God for his goodness, for his greatness, for his holiness, for, because I recognize he is worthy of such. And so the only access Paul is really telling us here we have to God is through Christ. It is Christ who is the fullness of God and it is through his person that we are made complete. Now, again, just for the sake of the argument, so I think it's been very clear thus far, but just to clarify in case there's any doubt whatsoever, we are not talking about antinomianism, as I mentioned before. We're not talking about living lawlessly as though there's no call to righteousness. No, we're talking about, and we'll see this in a moment, a, the freedom to live in righteousness that never previously existed. Verse 23. He says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So such actions of those who would repress physical, not sinful, but just physical desires in an effort to add some pseudo-righteousness to their account, some false righteousness to their account, would find that it profited them nothing. Men will perform numerous acts of contrition, of self-denial, and willing worship of things or beings other than God, and yet do so without any spiritual or eternal profit whatsoever. Galatians 2, 20 and 21, I referenced this a moment ago, but you know the verses, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Paul is stating the same thing. If we are dead with Christ to the rudiments of the world, then Why? Why live under the bondage of men, religious men? And he goes on to say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Again, the word frustrate here means to nullify. Paul is saying, I do not nullify God's grace. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I am dead with Christ righteousness is not by the law. Righteousness comes through Jesus, who is the very righteousness of God. Then in Galatians 3.21, Paul says, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Paul again states, there's no law that was capable of providing life for you. The law pronounced death the law announced death the law said you are guilty you are not righteous you are not holy and god requires death for that condemnation and judgment so if righteousness come not came not by the law how does it come it comes through jesus christ and so we are being made aware here that paul says and i believe this is absolutely a a a truthful statement being made with a hint of sarcasm in it, if you will, because Paul is saying these things have a show of wisdom and will worship. In other words, okay, there's an outward show, it's true, that while one may refrain from doing certain things or one may perform certain actions, it may appear as though there is some sense of humility or some sense of, it may appear to be some sense of piety, it may appear to be some sense of 
spiritual, spirituality or growth. It may appear to be as though there is righteousness being acted out. But he says, these things have a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in honor to the satisfying the flesh. In other words, it, it, to, to, to repress one's own physical desires. Again, no, we're not talking about sinful actions, just even physical desires. Like there's certain things, well, I just... I really want that, but I'm not going to do it because you know somebody this is somebody doesn't believe this to be right, or it's been I've been taught this isn't right, or what have you. And if we do it for those reasons, it may appear as though oh, there's a sense of righteousness here and holiness here, and a sense of spirituality and and maturity that is present. He says, but yet really, those things profit nothing. It doesn't mean anything. And he says the law does not provide righteousness, but Christ does. So those who the Son has made free, are free indeed. We do not live under the law, but are now free to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 17 and 18 tell us, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Look at verse 18 now. Being made then, or being then made free from sin... So we're free. We're free from sin. We're free from its guilt. We're free from its condemnation. We are free from its power. We are free from its bondage, being made free from sin. But then what's the next statement? Read it with me aloud. Ye became the servants of righteousness. So I am free in Christ, but yet bound to Christ and bound to righteousness. Again, this is the answer to what some would claim. And by the way, uh, Romans 6 is, is as well, uh, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. And some people, again, have formed this heretical idea that that means that we are free from law to live lawlessly. Is What difference does it make then? Because we're free, right? We've been set free. Yes, we've been set free from bondage of sin and condemnation of sin and delivered unto righteousness to which now we are bound. Here's the bottom line. We're slaves either way. You're either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. But the difference is a master that destroys and a master who restores, who redeems, and who loves. And so we are not free to live lawlessly. We are free to live righteously. And that is something, and this is the beauty of this. When we talk about the freedom that's in Christ, which Paul is dealing with here, he's not, again, saying live lawlessly. Of course not. He never even implies that, though some would take it that way. That is never what he says. And if you understand the other teaching of Paul and the teaching of scriptures, uh, the culmination of teaching of scriptures, then you know that's not the case at all. That Paul is not saying that by any means. But what people have failed to see in the beauty of this redemption so often, I believe, is that I mean, even genuine believers, they, they think of being made free from sin. And it's like that as far as they get in terms of their understanding of this salvation and this redemption. It's not just that I've been set free from sin, though I'm so grateful for that. God has now delivered me from such bondage. And by His Spirit dwelling in me, enabled me to now live in righteousness, which is something I could not do 
as an unregenerate man. In other words, let me say it to you like this, and I think this really, this really helps to clarify the whole argument. Anyone, potentially, can stop doing certain things. Now, I know there's habits and there are addictions that people have that are seemingly just grip their lives and destroy them. I understand that. But, you know, there's been many, let me just give you an example of drunkenness, okay? Not drinking, drunkenness. Drunkenness is sin, clearly stated in Scripture, drunkenness. And to be a drunk is sinful. So, has there ever been any person that totally forsook drunkenness completely, maybe never even drank again, and yet still perished? Of course, right? Even if it had a great bondage over them, there's people that have broken free from that and quit and stopped and refrained, taste not, touch not, handle not, literally left that alone, right? And yet still perish. So what I'm saying to you is this, while men are capable, potentially any man, woman, child, whatever, any person is potentially capable of refraining from certain sins or actions as an unbeliever, remaining an unbeliever, no unbeliever is capable of living in righteousness. And there is the distinct difference. So men can stop doing certain things and start, people can, look, people can stop committing certain sins and start going to church, right? So what? But what they can't do is live righteously. That's something the man who is in bondage to the power of sin, the condemnation of sin, can never do. So the freedom we have in Christ, again, is not lawlessness, it's righteousness. To live in the truth of the righteousness to which we have been set free. Wherefore, Paul sums it all up. Why then, if you are complete in him, why would you attempt to fulfill what's already been fulfilled? Because the law says do. The law says, in a, in a, the law is a declaration of God's righteousness, which he requires. Hence, I say it says do in the respect of, from the perspective of saying that this is what God says must be done, but men can't do. That's the problem. And yet men who live under such commandments and traditions and laws of men and adding to the law which is fulfilled in Christ, adding to the righteousness of God or attempting to add to their own righteousness before God are attempting to fulfill something that's already been fulfilled in the person of Christ. He came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. All the promises of God in him are yes and amen. He is the fulfillment. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily All the promises of God are are yes and amen, complete and fulfilled in him. Therefore, it is absolutely foolish for those who've been set free to live righteously in his righteousness to attempt to fulfill something that he has fulfilled. Why put yourself under such bondage? But you know what men readily do? Place themselves under bondage. And I think there's a reason why, and I'm finished. We know we cannot 
live up to the righteousness of Christ. Don't we know that? Right? You readily confess that with me as well, right? That you cannot live up to the righteousness of Jesus. Let me tell you what you can do. When you're not living in his righteousness and attempting to produce righteousness yourself, knowing you cannot live up to his righteousness, you will quickly take on someone else's self-declaration of righteousness that you can measure up to, again, to find some fulfillment or sense of fulfillment that means and profits nothing. So let us live in the righteousness of Christ. Let us live righteously as he has freed us to do in submission to Christ and his word, his truth, not be put under the bondage of religion and teachings of men. You're free from that. Listen, you should rejoice in that. I rejoice in that. I don't have to live up to others' expectations, up to others' so-called standards or even convictions. I'm to live according to the Scriptures in submission to Christ. And you know what? You've been empowered and enabled and set free to do just that. So let us do it. As we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. Let's stand together in prayer. Father.